listeners don't want to use the website or the call center to contribute to WBAI, that's okay. Please feel free to send your check or money order to WBAI, 3rd Floor, 388 Atlantic Avenue, Brooklyn, New York, 11217. Please make a check or money order out to Pacifica-WBAI. We thank you for your donation and hope that you will spread Up in the morning and out to school. The teacher is teaching the golden rule. American history and practical man. You study them hard hoping to pass. Working your fingers right down to the bone. Hello, everyone. My name is Leonie Hampson. Welcome to our show, Talk Out of School on WBAI Radio, 99.5 FM and WBAI.org, where we focus on issues affecting public schools here in New York City, the state level, and nationally. Our show is also available for download as a podcast. My special guest this week is Jonathan Friedman, Director of Free Expression and Education Programs at PEN America, who is an expert on book banning a movement sweeping across many parts of this country to remove books from schools and from public libraries. He will help us understand why this disturbing trend is happening at this moment in time and what we can do to fight against it. WBAI has a long history of fighting censorship that began 50 years ago when the station broadcast a monologue given by comedian George Carlin with some words that would not be seen now as particularly controversial. A listener filed a complaint to the FCC leading to the WBAI being ordered never to broadcast those words again. But before we bring on our special guest, first some local education news. Every month in New York City, there's a meeting of the Panel for Educational Policy. Our local school board, except unlike 99% of school boards across the nation, ours is largely appointed with the supermajority of appointees by the mayor. Each month, month, the PEP members vote on millions of dollars of contracts for the DOE, which are nearly always approved no matter how unnecessary and or wasteful. Last month's meeting agenda included a vote on a non-competitive contract with McGraw-Hill to pay $32 million for textbooks with a 0% discount from their list price and a 7% charge for shipping and handling. When I read the proposal for this contract Sunday night, I was outraged about the lack of a discount especially given such a huge bulk order, and started tweeting about it, pointing out that the DOE likely could have gotten a better deal from Amazon. Many others chimed in. At the PEP contract committee meeting the following day, there was a discussion about this proposed contract with questions from several of the non-mayoral appointees. The DOE's own chief procure officer responded by admitting that the contract proposal, quote, doesn't make sense and added, you guys have a very, very strong point. The Daily News wrote an article about the controversy and the contract proposal was pulled off the agenda for that meeting. The DOE officials intimated it would be back and that the lack of a contract wouldn't interrupt any services, implying that schools that opted for purchasing these books would still have to pay the full list price. Month after month, there are similar proposals for millions to be spent on contracts with very little rationale or explanation by DOE. One of the reasons Class Size Matters, my organization, advocated for the New York City controller to be put on the panel as a non-voting member was so that some of these contracts could be carefully examined in advance by someone with the knowledge and staff to closely examine their cost and utility so that millions of dollars could be saved and put back in the classroom where they belong. But so far we've seen very little improvement in this area. I'll put the link to a couple of articles about the McGraw-Hill contract in the resources section of the podcast and of WBAI, but we really need more eyes on DOE spending and more voices to speak out about it. Another issue that the PEP did vote upon last month was to approve a co-location for a success academy charter school that is proposed to be pushed into a building occupied by Watership Leadership Waterside Leadership Academy, a middle school in Queens. Though the vote was closer than expected at eight to seven, it was still approved despite the opposition of all the non-mayoral members of the panel and the parents of Waterside, 
who spoke out passionately against it. Four more Success Academy co-locations in Brooklyn, Queens, and the Bronx have been proposed by the administration and are to be voted on at the December 21st PEP meeting and two subsequent meetings in January. Yesterday, there were protests and student walkouts at two of the schools in Queens where these co-locations have been proposed, as these schools are already badly overcrowded and will become even more so if these co-locations go through. What's clear from all the proposals issued so far is that the DOE is insisting to go ahead with these co-locations without any thought of how additional classroom space will be needed in these schools to lower class size if they are to comply with the new class size law that was passed by the legislature last June and signed into law by the governor in September. A few weeks ago, a new amendment to the capital plan for schools was also issued, which cut funding for new capacity and never mentions any need to create space for class size reduction. In addition, it is unclear to me as to why the city should be giving any space to Success Academy when the school abuses its students as repeatedly shown, including in a decision in federal court where they were ordered to pay $2.4 million to families for pushing out their children with disabilities. More recently, Gary Rubenstein, a New York City math teacher who has studied this issue in detail, blogged about data he'd received showing that success has a student attrition rate of 78%, meaning that only 22% of the students who start out at the school in kindergarten eventually end up graduating from one of their high schools. Perhaps even more shockingly, Gary previously found that nearly half of success ninth graders do not even graduate from a success high school in four years. Instead, 5% of their ninth graders graduate after five or six years, and 40% leave the school before graduation. I'll put links to Gary's posts about this issue in the resources section of the podcast and of WBAI as well. As we've discussed before on this show, Mayor Adams was elected with huge support from the charter school lobby. Perhaps he's intent on paying them back now with these co-locations. Adams' election was also supported by the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community, and last week it was reported that the DOE had approved of a three-page remediation plan submitted by one of these yeshivas after the state education department had found that the school had failed to provide its students with basic instruction in English, math, and science. We shall soon see how the state education commissioner rules on this and if she agrees that this three-page plan is sufficient. So now let's turn to another issue, one that is relevant to the current state of our public schools nationally. My guest today is Jonathan Friedman, Director of Free Expression and Education Programs at PEN America, to talk about the disturbing trend of book banning from public libraries and public schools that's happening in districts nationwide. Thank you for being with us today, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. So tell us about how many books have been banned across the country and how widespread is this movement? Is it happening mainly in red states or blue and purple states as well? You know, about a year and a half ago, I would have said that we were monitoring book banning that was, you know, picking up steam in some school districts in Texas, uh, in Virginia, in Florida. But today, I mean, I get book bans reported to me in states all over the country almost every day. Uh, you know, it's not as often that they are coming from blue states, but there are certainly some areas of blue states, you know, sometimes uh, more rural, uh, but not always, where there are people who are agitating for the removal of books. To give some sense of scope, I think it's important that people understand that it's extremely uh, hard to keep up with the real-time removal of books. Books can be removed in school libraries, you know, for all manner of reasons. And people who bring challenges to books, uh, to school boards, to principals, to superintendents, uh, a lot often happens that isn't necessarily reported uh, right away. And so, you know, the data is is kind of always changing. Uh, and it should also be understood that any numbers is a minimum count. That's that's kind of, you know, what we could verify, what we were made aware of, what we can um, offer as an image and understanding of this. So in the last school year, which we documented from July 2021 through June 2022, we tracked about 2,500 book bans um, in 
uh, over 30 states, affecting about 5 million students. And that could be, you know, in one school district, it could be one or two books, or it could be, you know, more than 100. Um, and um, I'm happy to elaborate, you know, on our definitions of book bans in a minute. But just to give some sense of scope, we tracked in, in the la- that school year over 1,600 different book titles that had been challenged in one place or another. So this is, you know, a huge number of different kinds of books on different topics. Now, at the the current school year, uh, I don't have a number since July through December of this year, but I can tell you that some of the individual stories uh, make it seem like, indeed, there's no question that this, this movement is escalating dramatically. There is a school district in Oklahoma that recently said it removed every single graphic novel from every school in the district after one graphic novel was challenged. Something about that challenge to one book made them decide that they better restrict access, suspend access to every single book that's of a, of a graph, uh, every kind of graphic novel, fiction, nonfiction. You know, I don't actually have a list of all the books, but they did say it was at least three thousand books that were pulled off shelves for about two months and um, you know one student has been on the record they're saying you know this is outrageous that you would uh, restrict access to me to all of these books based on you know nobody even objecting to you know 99 percent of them um so that's just a small window into the kinds of reports that are coming out you know all over and it's much more frequent now that i'm dealing with a case where the average number of books is 100 than it was a year ago where the average number was, I don't know, under 10. So that's some indication of how this is changing. So can you tell us what sort of books are being banned most commonly? And does this apply equally to public libraries as well as public schools? So when this started, um, there were two pretty distinct tracks. One was uh, an effort to remove books that dealt with, you know, racism, either historically or contemporarily. A lot of it um, related to this broader conversation that was happening around the country about CRT and critical race theory and divisive concepts. So you had people coming after books uh, like the 1619 Project or books by Ibram Kendi or uh, Angie Thomas's The Hate You Give. And that was happening kind of, you know, in many places on one track. And then you had a different set of um, individuals and groups who were very clearly targeting books with LGBTQ characters and stories. Um, And that could run the gamut from a book, you know, written by a queer author where the protagonists and the storyline is about, I don't know, maybe a teenager uh, coming out. Or it could be a book that's maybe for a younger child that just has two same-sex parents and, you know, it isn't really dealing with puberty or sex whatsoever. It's just literally uh, the basic representation and acceptance that that LGBTQ people exist in the world. Um, so over the past year and a half, those have been pretty consistently what gets most of uh, the targeting. But a third uh, a third element has emerged, and it's this one that seems to be growing more and more, which is sexual content. And in part, that's because I think in a lot of places, there are some people who have long opposed the idea of any sex education being available in schools, you know, period whatsoever, and that they see a, a kind of greater opening right now to cast any kind of sexual content in books as forms of pornography or obscenity uh, or indecent material. And in some ways, it's it's easier to say that they object to sex in a book and have people support that. And also, um, you know, because of the existing taboos around talking about sex, there's more there seems to be more support for that than saying that they oppose a book because of how it talks about racism. Um, and I'll just say, you know, day in, day out, All kinds of books are being swept up in this because when you engage in censorship as a way to moderate content in school libraries, um, inevitably you're going to sweep in all kinds of things. Uh, and so, you know, there's, there's new books that are being targeted all the time. Uh, we've seen the Bible uh, implicated in a few of these cases or, uh, Mouse by Art Spiegelman. Um, and so it's not necessarily. Uh, always a consistent set of books that are being attacked. Uh, To the last question, it's also very clear this fall that although a year ago this was clearly a school library's issues with with some, I would say, some echo in public libraries, now both fronts seem to be uh, picking up steam. And so uh, there are uh, just a slate of stories this fall about 
um, scenes at library board meetings that mirror the kinds of raucous debates that were erupting at school board meetings only a year ago. Uh, and in a number of states, there are all kinds of proposals uh, being offered about public libraries, um, proposals that seem just on their face rather extreme. You know, one library in Michigan um, was, uh, uh, did a kind of public vote on whether it would continue to collect its, its millage from citizens, and they voted basically not to continue to fund the library. Um, at a library in Louisiana, uh, just this week, there was a proposal to put every graphic novel in the library behind the circulation desk. Now, that resolution failed, um, or it was tabled for now, but that's the kind of solutions that are being offered to the fact that some people don't like some books, that we would essentially turn the notion of a library on its head or, you know, get rid of it altogether. And so that's what's really concerning right now. It's that this is moving in so many new directions where the proposals on the table appear to be only getting more and more, well, extreme. Let's backtrack for a second, because you said one of the books that was being questioned was the Bible. What's that about? Well, most often the Bible comes up in um, in cases where uh, somebody doesn't like book banning and challenges the Bible as a kind of counter. Uh, you know, if you're going to ban books that have sex, well, here's a book that has lots of sex and murder and, you know, death and um, sexual assault and, and the like. And um, so the Bible is usually challenged as a way to kind of protest book banning. But what's interesting is that nonetheless, it kind of gets swept up in situations. So you have a school district in in Texas where last year two people filed challenges to the Bible. Then they retracted them. I think they maybe may assume that they felt like, well, you know, maybe they shouldn't, you know, approach censorship with more censorship and they pulled their challenges. But this fall, the school district decided to um, order removed from all schools any book that was challenged in the past year um, because because it, it basically they were trying to undo some decisions that had been made to keep some books with LGBTQ content. So those had been evaluated in the previous year. So they said, OK, we're going to remove from schools all the books that were challenged last year. And then essentially what they did was they ordered the Bible removed. So you have a situation where the complaint was uh, somewhat, um, you know, the complaint was was clearly driven as a protest and it was retracted. But then a year later, the books are being removed anyway. So you have these kind of like nonsensical situations and those are happening all the time. Um, it's like a, I've seen this a few times where a book is challenged in a school district that isn't even on the shelves or a book is ordered removed from a school district by a superintendent or something. And then it turns out they didn't have the book either. So, so this is, there, there are these moments where you kind of have to chuckle. I don't know. at just the absurdity of some of the situations. So you answered part of this question. I think uh, the movement to ban books or the resurgence of a large scale movement to ban books started about a year ago. Is that right? Um, and, and, and why do you think it's happening at this moment in, in history? I think that you cannot look at what is happening all over the country right now and not suspect and, and find that it is to a degree coordinated and organized. You have groups that sprung up in communities all over the country, really in just the past two years that didn't exist previously. Many of them appear to have um, taken... Uh, uh, have kind of grown out of anti-mask sentiment or uh, sentiment against schools shutting down during the pandemic. And those are the kinds of people who who were really angry about that, who have kind of channeled that frustration, it seems, into um, this issue around censorship in, in books in school libraries. Um, so why is this happening? You know, some people believe that there is, you know, a deeply coordinated uh, kind of extreme right wing, you know, dark money effort behind this. You know, there may be some of that, but in, in a lot of places, um, it, it does seem to be individuals who have been kind of moved to be involved. So you have some of this where, uh, let's say you have an organized group that's been trying to do this for many, many years, but in Florida, all of a sudden that group seems to have gotten the ear of Ron DeSantis. You know, previously, 
politicians didn't necessarily act on these um, groups and their beliefs, but then something got politically, I don't know, opportunistic. There was a political um, uh, moment. Uh, and then the uh, election in Virginia of Glenn Youngkin, which was a really fought on the issue of parents' rights and books, seems to have also catalyzed a lot of interest. So it's in the wake of that that we see more interest from politicians in Texas, um, Wisconsin, a few other places. And so there is a degree to which it seems to be driven by some amount of political opportunism, some amount of um, conservative organizing that, you know, seems to mirror, honestly, uh, some of the uh, efforts that were behind the Tea Party. You know, that was the last, you know, kind of major grassroots-ish uh, uprising targeting public institutions. And there are similarities here in the kind of, you know, outrage that is showing up at school board meetings. You know, look, people have, you know, certainly parents have a role to play in their children's education. But I think for many parents, they approach teachers in, you know, a civil way. They try to find compromise. You know, the idea that you would be so upset about a book that you would stage, you know, a dramatic performance at a school board meeting. It's kind of surprising. There's a jump there happening in terms of um, uh, people's, I don't know, responses to things. So I've heard an, a theory, which I'd like your uh, response to, which is some people have suggested that some of the impetus behind this was added to because of remote learning due to COVID, that more parents actually witnessed what was being taught their kids in school in a way that hadn't happened before. And this was part of the spark that generated these, these, these protests. What do you think of that theory? Well, I think it's really difficult to say this was all because of one particular force moment, you know, trend that does seem to be uh, the case that there are a lot of people who, uh, claim that that's what got them most upset about this. But it's very clear right now that if you look at, like, when I'm talking about a hundred books being challenged, you know, that is being done by someone who is literally combing through entire libraries or searching for books that have any kind of, um, let's say, LGBTQ content whatsoever. You know, that's more of a crusade than it is, you know, just an individual's frustration. Um, and look, like, public schools change. Curricula evolves. You know, people question narratives about history or how we teach about diversity and identity in new ways. Um, so I don't know that it's necessarily unique to this moment, the idea that a group of parents would, um, you know, become informed about what is being taught in schools and say that it, it didn't seem, you know, consistent with their values. You know, in that sense, like, honestly, many schools right now are teaching math in a way that is totally different from how their parents learned it. Um, and that involves, you know, a pretty radical change. And you can say, oh, I can't help my kids do their math homework because uh, it's different. But, you know, the idea that, that we would foment, um, you know, like a mass movement, a growing movement to uh, change how we teach math, you know, that isn't happening because people just say, well, you know, we respect that there is um, a professional expertise behind this, that there are studies of it. And somehow that faith and trust in librarians in particular has been targeted and undermined so that, you know, people aren't responding to this situation in that way to say, well, you know, that book is there, but the librarians must understand that there are some people in our diverse community who do want that book in a school library because it reflects their family or they have LGBTQ children or what have you. This is Lainey Hameson on Talk Out of School on WBAI 99.5 FM and WBAI.org. And I'm talking to Jonathan Friedman of Penn USA about the book banning movement, which is spreading across schools throughout the U.S. This may be um, an obvious question or an obvious answer, but I'd really love to hear you articulate why it's so important that students should have access to the sort of books that are being banned. Well, you know, schools and education generally is vital to a democratic citizenship. And, you know, one of the things that I say actually historically distinguished American education is its kind of openness to debate, the idea that you could go into a school and interrogate history and that schools might be run in a way that mirrored kind of our, our democratic ideals. Now that all, it probably isn't always upheld, but at least that's the ideal that has been, um, 
put forth to guide uh, schools. And what we have seen is that for many young people, uh, what they read in books can totally transform their understanding of the world. You know, a book can take people places. Um, it can teach about diverse identities. It can foster empathy. It can uh, prevent, present new ways of thinking about history that impact our contemporary world. Um, and for many LGBTQ students and, and youth, a lot of them talk about how a book you know, affirmed their sense of who they were, that, you know, learning that there were people like them uh, that existed elsewhere in the world or who had similar kind of questions about their identity uh, helped them, you know, find themselves and grow. And in a lot of cases, that isn't necessarily, um, it isn't the case that all of those young people come from families that are supportive of them in their identity. So in that sense, you know, the key um, lifeline for a lot of those kids can be the books in, in schools that they're, that they're able to access, uh, exercising, you know, their liberty, their freedom to, um, read what interests them. You know, there's also a huge, huge argument to be made about just literacy generally. The number of teachers who say to me, well, I can't believe, you know, we are, uh, having this conversation about book banning when I can't even get, you know, my eighth graders to read, you know, so, um, a lot of those people say that, graphic novels have been a game changer for reluctant readers, that they are uh, really vital, particularly when we are dealing with a situation of learning loss coming out of the pandemic that is afflicting so many young people. You know, they say, you know, most kids today are behind now where they would have been otherwise, and that includes in reading. So that we would um, take away books that could encourage readership, that could encourage people to become literate and become learned about, you know, American society or the general world, you know, that's pretty, pretty concerning. So how does the current movement of book banning compare to other movements in the past of book ba banning? If you look well, back at our history, is this yeah. more focused on schools than ones in past decades? So, you know, if you look at like the McCarthy period, there certainly during the Red Scare, there was uh, a focus on textbooks, but there wasn't really a focus on um, independent reading, you know, books that had stories in libraries. If you look at the late 1970s and early 1980s, there was also an effort to remove books in schools. And it's, it's out of that period um, that uh, the Supreme Court case uh, called Pico v. Island Trees, um, that it, it comes from that period. Uh, and at that time, there were conservative um, organizations who were sharing lists of books to, you know, to encourage people to remove them in schools. But the lists were not anything like what we are seeing today. The kinds of books that were targeted were not kind of being targeted en masse just because they had um, certain kinds of identities in them. So, you know, there's no like, there's a gay person in this book. We, and, and these are all the books that have gay people. We must remove them from schools. You know, that was not, that's never been part of a book ban, a mass book ban movement before. And that is what makes this so unprecedented. You have that, um, extreme desire to kind of erase any representation whatsoever, coupled with social media and a kind of political climate in which, um, that kind of extreme reaction to public institutions is being indulged and encouraged, right? To be skeptical that anything public is being operated in the public good, um, to be skeptical of, you know, any, um, um, public official, uh, that has been spread through things like, you know, QAnon conspiracies online. So all of that is part of this moment that we're in that makes it unique. And that's why we really haven't seen anything like this. I mean, this is unprecedented in scale and scope to have somebody suggesting they've made a list of over 3,000 books that they want banned from every library in the country. You know, I mean, that's what's happening right now. And that's where this is going. At the same time, there's this push to censor curriculum and the teaching of U.S. history, including classroom gag orders in certain states which is creating undue pressure on teachers who are already un, un, underpaid, overworked, and at the end of their rope. Um, the, the names of the groups that come up when you do a little bit of research, Parents Defending Education, No Hard Left, Moms for Liberty, you mentioned a lot of this is actual pressure groundswell from below. But isn't it true also that some of these groups are being funded by wealthy uh, right-wing 
um, foundations. Um, for example, uh, Moms for Liberty and the Koch brothers are funding um, training sessions for people running for school board to pursue some of the same uh, right-wing agenda. I think that's certainly part of it. Um, there have also been a number of politicians who get very active, you know, maybe in their local school district where they are, you know, I don't know, sending an email to a school district saying that they want to know the locations of all the books on some list and whether they have them and how many copies and where exactly they are. So there, it, it's not just, I would say, um, you know, wealthy donors. And, and personally, I, ha I haven't mapped the wealthy donor side of this. I'm looking more at the impacts on schools and the um, what's, what's driving this. There's no question that a lot of these groups have been talking to each other and learning from one another online. Um, how else do you explain, you know, the same books being targeted for the same passages, but this, literally sometimes you have a, a challenge form, which is something that, uh, some, if you want to object to a book in a school, you have to give a reason. You have like a school district in Florida and a school district in Texas where someone has filled in the identical answers on a form for, to object to the same book. So there's, there's clear, uh, whether you call it coordination, whether you call it mimicking, sharing ideas, what have you, it's very clear that people are trying to row uh, in a particular direction. And, um, you know, it, it's not just in terms of the books that are challenged, I'd say also it's some of the tactics. So the idea that the best way to um, draw attention to this concern publicly is to go to a school board meeting and read a book that has uh, some sexual, I don't know, content or excerpt from a book. And this has been happening now in, in all kinds of school board meetings and public library meetings where somebody, you know, dramatically poses to the room, okay, I want to make sure there's no minors here. And now I'm going to read for you all a scene that, you know, is, is, uh, you know, sexual and in some way, because sex is taboo, um, you know, designed to make everyone uncomfortable, in particular the authorities who put this book, you know, available in libraries. But what they, I think, don't understand is that there's such a difference between uh, reading a book aloud and reading a book, you know, independently alone, you know. And so you do have to question sometimes the motive behind um, people who are very concerned about sex in books, but are kind of doing everything they can to publicize and share the sex parts of the books. And taking it out of context also, obviously. Oh, always, always. Yeah. I mean, you, you have flyers that have been made uh, with excerpts from books and delivered to people's houses ahead of the last election. So to be devil's advocate now, don't conservatives have good reason to fear the influence of teachers who tend to have more progressive values, especially in conservative areas? And isn't it true that the younger generation is far more likely to vote Democratic than older voters? Well, I mean, so there's two different questions there. One is, you know, how do teachers lean and uh, politically? And two is, how does that inflect in their teaching? And, you know, I think sometimes we can view this through the lens of, of politics, but in other cases, we have to view this through the lens of, you know, history, truth, questioning, uh, inquiry. You know, I think there are certainly cases where uh, politics have influenced the decisions, you know, political proclivities have influenced the decisions of people who work in schools. But to kind of smear all teachers and say, you know, every teacher is, I don't know, a, a, you know, a left wing person who has no respect for anything that could be remotely conservative. You know, I don't think that's the case. A lot of people have been teaching for many years. And in a lot of cases, you know, particularly teachers who engage in civics or history uh, or even literature are extremely open to debate and, and disagreement. And, and they do, I think, try to be respectful of the fact that they serve diverse communities. Now, you also have to question in some cases, is it just, you know, conservative politics writ large that is driving a parent to object to something that's happening in a, in a school? You know, in both of these labels, conservative, progressive, they, they, they cover so many different views on so many different issues. And a lot of people don't necessarily fall at the extremes, but they have, you know, more complicated views of different issues in different ways. So I, I resist the, the, uh, effort that's being made right now to kind of talk about this without any nuance or without any research or without any, um, you know, I don't know, actual firsthand experience of these things. Um, you know, yes, when people get together in public institutions in a diverse democracy, they disagree. Does that mean we can never work out these disagreements? 
I don't think so. I think we have to. And then to the question about young people and how they vote, I mean, to say that they're all voting one way, I think, you know, belies the fact that many of them do vote Republican. You know, it's not by any means like 100 percent, you know, all young people. A lot of uh, young uh, Republicans on many college campuses, for example, have been very vocal about their uh, perspectives and views and wanting to invite people that support their political ideologies to campuses. So, you know, to say that that doesn't exist within the political, I don't know, spectrum, um, you know, it clearly does. But it's almost unfair to young people to say, you know, schools are producing them in some way. And it's kind of like it's almost like this factory notion that, that young people are like these automatons who go through school and have no individual agency and no ability to think critically about the world. You know, if young people are deciding to vote that way, maybe it's because they have you know, political agency. And that's where, as they have evaluated political issues like climate change or, um, you know, women, a woman's right to uh, uh, abortion, and they feel very strongly about that issue. You know, in some ways, that's because they've been taught about the civil rights movement or history. But to, um, you know, I think we have to respect their decision, just like we would any other citizen to make a political uh, decision. This is Lainey Hampson on Talk Out of School on WBAI 99.5 FM and WBAI.org. And I'm talking about talking to Jonathan Friedman about the origins and motivations of some of the groups who are advocating for banning books in school libraries across the country. So here we are in New York City, and I'm really curious as to what is the position of New York City in this debate, because honestly, we haven't heard much push to ban school libraries here, but we have heard that the Brooklyn Public Library is taking a position in this debate. And can you explain where we are situated here in New York City as opposed to the rest of the country? I don't know of a school um, a school district in New York City where a, a challenge has been um, aggressively brought against a book in the way that it has in other parts of the country. Certainly in New York State, we have seen many of these dynamics at play in different parts. But there are other things that have happened in New York City that do reflect these dynamics around the country. Um, you know, there was a, a mural, for example, in a, a Brooklyn school uh, where a principal felt like it, you know, it was I think it was a Black Lives Matter mural um, and they ordered it, you know, taken down, removed, erased. Uh, there was a um, event scheduled at a public library in the Bronx uh, for an LGBTQ student to present where they received um uh, harassing emails, I think death threats, and then the library said they couldn't guarantee security, so they canceled the event. And that mirrors things that have been happening, you know, all over the country in predominantly red states, but nonetheless. Um, so those things are still happening here in New York City. It doesn't exist, you know, apart from these trends all over. Um, and, you know, there could be all kinds of ways in which people are being impacted by this. You know, the chilling effect of the laws that we've seen, um, the book ban demands. It's not just, you know, removing books from libraries, but it has a tangible impact on people's decisions about what books to bring into libraries. Um, and, you know, I think it was last summer also on Long Island, there was a, a public library that uh, opted to ban any Pride Month displays. Now, they reversed that uh, uh, pretty quickly. But those those, you know, that idea, that mindset, again, that, that we should react to um, ideas we don't like by, you know, trying to ex by by trying to enact extreme measures to control the circulation of information. You know, that idea is certainly, you know, here as well. Um, and the Brooklyn Public Library, I think, um, you know, sees a, a higher mission and the fact that it had a, you know, digital database of works that were available and the, the opportunity to uh, support the freedom to read around the country uh, means that, you know, they offered books to young people who couldn't find them in their school districts. And, and from what I understand, they, they were inundated with young people all over the country who were clamoring to read these books. And so, you know, a lot of librarians in many parts of the country believe in being responsive to the interests of their communities in terms of what kinds of books they put in so that books will circulate. And if you have a situation where young people all over the country actually do want to read these books and they can't get them in their public school libraries, well, then those school boards are perhaps doing those young people a disservice. And so Brooklyn Public Library appears to have stepped into that gap. 
Can you tell us what happened to the Oklahoma teacher who distributed information about how to access these books through the Brooklyn Public Library? Yeah, um, she uh, was uh, she I think she was being threatened with being terminated or suspended. And ultimately, she stepped down. This is a teacher who, you know, clearly believes in, you know, the importance of access to literature. And she distributed a QR code to students. She put it on the walls of her classroom uh, so that they could access the Brooklyn Public Library's books unbanned um, digital uh, interface. Um, but the reaction to this in, in Oklahoma was to suggest that that action had violated a law um, uh, banning the teaching of divisive concepts. So, you know, these are these laws that have been that were um, modeled on uh, President Trump's executive order banning uh, the teaching of a set of concepts in in public institutions. You know, many states have have um, implemented these uh, what we at Penn America have called educational gag orders. And you had the State Board of Education um, saying that that this teacher should be suspended from teaching in Oklahoma forever, uh, have their license revoked for this action, and suggesting that it violated the law. Now, how could it violate the law? Because of the potential here, because of the potential that in in sharing the access to this library, the students might read a book that might break the law. And that's just, you know, a real jump from a teacher can't teach certain things or say things in certain ways to a teacher can't, you know, encourage people to go to a library because of what people might read. Um, and so that's, you know, that's the, again, that's, that's the kind of mindset here that's pretty extreme. Um, and, you know, we have to recognize that like, the freedom to read is such a critical part of the freedom of speech. How can you have the freedom to articulate your ideas and share information if you don't have the opportunity to receive information, to pursue your interests? And it's that that's being threatened in each of these cases. Have you heard about this fellow who shares your own last name, Bruce Friedman? Uh, he's the president and founder of the Florida chapter of No Left Turn in Education and is a former New Yorker. And he compiled a list of over 3,600 titles that involved, according to him, quote, porn, critical race theory, social emotional learning, and fluid gender. And he challenged a committee of the Florida Board of Education to ban all 3,600 books, or he said he would uh, do some sort of legal challenge. Have you heard about this? I have. And I don't know if he's yet. I, I know he's sort of intimated that he has this uh, list. I don't know if he's technically yet filed challenges to all books on the list in that county. Um, but, you know, he's he is one of um, many activists, these sort of individual activists who really taken it upon themselves, almost like a, a calling to, you know, commit themselves to removing books in their local libraries. Sometimes they're parents, sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're parents who have, have who are homeschooling or who have kids who go to private school. Um, and uh, so, you know, what these individuals are doing is essentially building on each other's work. So, you know, a list of a hundred books in Utah that somebody wants to object to becomes a list of 200 books when it's combined with a list from Texas. Um, and so I believe that 3,600 book list you know, to arrive at that, you know, that's essentially somebody, you know, agglomerating, right? Uh, all these lists that have been put together. And in Texas, in particular, there was a list last year of 850 books. And it was very clear that that list had been assembled by somebody going in a library database and putting in keywords, you know, LGBTQ, racism, diversity. Um, and and it, it swept up all kinds of books. You had a book even that was uh, edited by... Um, uh, Congressman Jamie Raskin that was in that list. And it was like a book about First Amendment rights. And so, you know, coming back to something I said earlier, all kinds of books end up on these lists when you start just, you know, putting things together. So are we to imagine that this person has read 3,600 books? Of course not. They have an impression that these books contain certain kinds of content. And again, you see pretty extreme definitions being used. So when they say like a book has pornography, what they can mean is just a book has two moms. You know, one of these books is called Mommy, Mama and Me. It's a board book where like a kid has two moms and they eat dinner. And that's the most controversial thing in the book. And the only rationale you could have for wanting to remove this book is 
really just pure hatred of LGBTQ people even existing with a modicum of respect in society. And so um, those are the kinds of books in there. You know, to speak of another New York connection, one of the books that's being targeted uh, on that list and in others in Florida is called Antango Makes Three. And it's the story of two penguins in the New York Central Park Zoo, who uh, two male penguins who were given a baby, uh, baby penguin and raised it. And it's like, you know, that is a true story. It's a fact of nature that humans are not the only creature on Earth that has um, uh, that engages in same sex relationships and couplings, etc. And that fact is one that people are so uh, opposed to circulating. I mean, they're they are quite fun- fundamentally here opposed to the circulation of basic scientific facts. Now, there's a conversation and a debate to be had among parents, among communities. You know, at what age should we teach sex education? At what age should we allow people to read, I don't know, The Handmaid's Tale? But and but the, by, the, by that same token, uh, it seems that like the availability of a book about penguins like this should not be something that we uh, have to debate at great length and should not be a book that is literally being removed. Um, there's another school district in Florida that just removed that book and Tango makes three. And they said it's because it violated the state's new um, don't say gay law. And again, there's a jump happening. That law says you can't have classroom instruction about gender and sexual orientation. It doesn't say anything about it. you can't have a book in a library that mentions that two male penguins once, you know, formed a couple and raised a, a baby. Uh, but nonetheless, people are saying, oh, well, you know, it, 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 at all reflects LGBTQ identities, so we must remove it from schools entirely. And that's the kind of erasure that we're seeing, the kind of extreme effort to remove all of these contents, and that's reflected, you know, in that person in their list as well. So on the other side, have there been any successful legal challenges to the book banning? In other words, um, trying to stop the banning of books through legal means? Currently, uh, there are some challenges that have been filed, but they haven't yet been uh, fully decided. Uh, so uh, we're going to to see what happens next. I know that there have been efforts to look into um, the decisions to remove books in many places, Utah, Texas, uh, Florida, Missouri. Um, and, um, you know, I think as this movement goes on, the uh, potential for some kind of legal challenge probably gets greater. So... How can our listeners, excuse me, how can our listeners support your work and that of Penn? Well, uh, you can go to uh, www.penpen.org and, uh, you know, you can find all of our information there. We have been tracking uh, book bans across the country for the past year and a half and trying to make that data available to the public. We track also the introduction of bills that are designed to censor education in K-12 uh, schools and colleges and universities. And um, we are looking to uh, find new ways to connect with the public, to make them aware of the scale and scope of this challenge, uh, and to, you know, encourage people to attend school board meetings in their local communities and to to organize in response to this. I think one of the most shocking elements of the past year is how often the books are removed just because one person objected to them. You know, a book, a list of 100 books in one South Carolina district means that those 100 books have been put into storage. No one read them. No one's even read them. No one even filed a form. Um, but the kind of fear that is driving and surrounding schools right now means people are reacting in those uh, kind of knee-jerk ways that ignore policy and ignore process. Something like 90% of the books uh, that have been banned in the past year have been done through processes that were not to the letter of existing board policies. And so those are areas where it's pretty clear that there has been no countervailing voice in those audiences. And, uh, you know, so when people are saying, you know, these books are inappropriate, this book is pornography, et cetera, there's nobody in the room who says, well, you might feel that way, but, you know, I'm raising an LGBTQ uh, uh, teenager and this book saved their life. So, you know, why should your hatred of this book mean that it's been removed for someone like me? And so those voices just haven't been loud enough. They haven't been there. Um, and then in some cases, those voices are being ignored. You have cases where the overwhelming number of people who might show up democratically um, is being ignored by the people who've been elected into some of these positions. And that's where, you know, the democratic process has to play out. People need to vote. They need to get involved and follow these issues. And it's very clear, as I said, that although maybe this isn't as prominent in New York City right now, the potential for it to uh, come here as well is certainly very much uh, on the table. 
I, I would also encourage people to donate to your organization, um, which is a nonprofit, and to help your work um, expand because it's so important. I'll put links to your excellent pen reports, <clears throat> which go into all these issues in more detail in the resources section of the podcast in WBAI, as well as some of the news articles about this disturbing phenomenon. Thank you, Jonathan Friedman, for being with us today and sharing your knowledge about book banning and how our listeners can get involved in fighting this movement that is sweeping the country and denying students the access to books that can be critical to their intellectual and emotional development. Thank you so much. Thank you. Listeners, it's that time of year when many of you make your charitable donations. Please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to WBAI and become a special supporter of this show, Talk Out of School, by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. There is no other show on the air that explores the issues and the controversies affecting our public schools, both here in New York City and nationally, like Talk Out of School. So if you appreciate what we're doing, please donate. WBAI really needs the support of listeners like you to survive as the only non-commercial, purely membership-supported radio station in New York City that doesn't run any ads. It costs WBAI $17,000 per month just to rent the tower in Times Square to be able to broadcast its shows. You can also donate online at WBAI.org. Remember, your donation is fully tax deductible. If you missed any part of the show or would like to recommend it to a friend, you can also listen to it as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and please leave a review. We'll be back soon with another episode of Talk Out of School, and until then, thanks so much for listening. Up in the morning and out to school. Is teaching the golden rule. American history and practical man. You study them hard and hoping to pass. Working your fingers right down to the bone. And the guy behind you won't leave you alone. Ring, ring goes the bell. The cook in the lunchroom ready to sell. If you have time to eat Back in the classroom Open your books Keep it the teacher Don't know how mean she looks Soon as three o'clock rolls around You finally lay your burden down Close up your books Get out of your seat Down the halls and into the street Up to the corner and round the bend into the slot you gotta hear something that's really hot with the one you love you're making romance all day long you've been wanting to dance feeling the music from head to toe round and round and round you go date with COVID-19 vaccines and boosters and mask up if it's crowded indoors. Happy, healthy holidays. On Monday, December 19th at 1030 a.m., the gate, the exonerated five, formerly known as the Central Park Five, used to enter in Central Park, will be named the gate of the exonerated. 
The ceremony is at 110th Street between Fifth Avenue and Malcolm X Boulevard in Harlem. You are all welcome to come and bring your families. The members of the five, with the exception of Antron McCray, who will not be able to attend, we're all going to be there. Our families are going to be there. The boys, now men, are going to be there. And we're hoping that you all come out and join us. It's going to be a great time. Again, December 19th at 10.30 a.m., 110th Street, between Fifth Avenue and Malcolm X Boulevard. It's the first time in 100 years that a gate will be named in Central Park. This gate of the exonerated represents people who were convicted and exonerated of crimes they did not commit. Innocent people who are still behind bars waiting for exoneration and for those freed fighting to exonerate their names. Don't want to use the website or the call center to contribute to WBAI? That's okay. Please feel free to send your check or money order to WBAI, 3rd Floor, 388 Atlantic Avenue, Brooklyn, New York, 11217. Please make your check or money order out to Pacifica-WBAI. We thank you for your donation and hope that you will spread the word and tell your friends. And please keep on listening. Funny, this radio hasn't been working very well the past two days. Peter, where do you live? you ask me. It's a secret place. Please tell me. All right, I tell you. Shen. Saturday afternoons at 6 here on WBAI. That should be time for our favorite program. Yes, just about time. I should have been back here a long time ago. What would you do if I went off the air? We <laughs> Hi, New York. It's Dr. Vossen, the city's doctor. The holidays are my favorite time of year for gathering with our friends and loved ones. So with COVID-19, the flu, and RSV spreading, here are five health tips for me to you so you can enjoy the holidays safely. One, get the new COVID-19 booster. Everyone over five, and especially those over 65 or who have a chronic health condition, should get the new booster right away. It protects against the variants of COVID-19 making people sick today. Two, get your annual flu shot. You can safely get your flu and COVID-19 shots at the same time. Three, wear a mask in crowds. Masks slow the spread of airborne illness. It's not an all-the-time thing, but for when you're around a lot of people indoors. Four, stay home if you're sick and get tested for COVID-19. Talk to your provider or call 212-COVID-19 for Paxlovid or other treatment options. And five, and as always, keep those hands clean. Spread cheer, not COVID or the flu, New Yorkers. After all we've been through, we all deserve a healthy and peaceful holiday. That message brought to you by the New York City Department of Health. This is WBAI New York. Extinction Diaries. In the winter of 2019, America's wild reindeer was declared extinct in the contiguous United States. The last American herd of caribou had collapsed to just one individual, and she was captured to assist in her survival with hopes that she can be released amongst the 14 remaining subpopulations in Canadian territory, all of which are endangered by human development. Biologists feared that she could not survive alone in the snowy Washington and Idaho wilderness. Caribou were once part of the incredibly populated wildlife that natives, explorers, and colonizers experienced from New England through the Upper Great Lakes and onto the Pacific Northwest. The caribou's numbers steadily contracted and by 1980 was recognized as endangered throughout the entire North American continent. The caribou has massive hooves that act like snowshoes and ironically have always been elusive, earning them nicknames like the Grey Ghost. 
Unfortunately for them and humans as well, the great ghost has not been elusive enough. My name is Mahaya Soul, and this is a Small World Radio production. 10 dollars a month. It's the price of a gigabyte of data for that iPad you never use. It's two overpriced coffees you ordered when you forgot to look at the menu. It's your overzealous attempts to meet the credit card minimum at the bodega on the corner. But 10 dollars a month could be a lot more. Become a BAI buddy and commit to a recurring monthly donation to WBAI. This money will help us continue to broadcast the thoughts and perspectives of the progressive public. A BAI buddy is also not without perks. Your monthly contribution will earn you a WBAI tote bag and a member card offering zip car sales, discounted meals at select restaurants, and a handful of other benefits. You will also become a full voting member of WBAI, and our diverse programming will reflect your voice. Go to give to WBAI.org and become a BAI buddy to support Free Speech Radio today. 99.5 FM WBAI New York and WBAI.org for all of our listeners tuning in on the web. Good afternoon. Hope everyone is doing well. Just remember, keep your hat on, wear your mask when you're outside in front of